Hey listeners, my name is Meg and I'm a volunteer here at Saltbox Church. I want to welcome you to our podcast. I love that the teaching here isn't about flashy gimmicks or hidden agendas. It's all about diving deep into thought-provoking, Jesus-centered discussions. We're glad you're here and we'd love to get to know you better. So please don't hesitate to reach out with your prayer requests, questions, and comments at our website, saltboxchurch.com. Merry Christmas. We are in the Advent season. I'm going to take a break from our Acts uh, series, and we are opening up um, an Advent series that's going to orient largely around a little uh, village in the Middle East. Can you imagine what the name of it is? Almost. Nazareth. So if you could come with me this morning, if we could have taken a walk this morning before our service gathering, we would have, um, I would have had you gather and we would have walked through the countryside around Nazareth. It's still a small city, Uh, but we would have seen things like sheep. We could have gone and we would have seen areas that have been excavated where there were um, wine presses, where there were millstones that would have been used to ground uh, olives. We would see olive groves. We would see Uh, things like villagers still going about their daily routines and their tasks, but there would be an experience of this place where God decided to descend um, and live. And so the question that I want to open for us this morning, we're going to read Luke 1 um, in in this uh, Christmas season or in this Advent season, is why did this God, why did God Almighty, Lord of heaven and earth, look across the fabric of time and choose Nazareth. So if you remember, and you may or may not know this, but in John 1:46, when Jesus was actually calling his disciples, uh, there was one of his disciples named Nathaniel, and Nathaniel's response when he was invited to go see Jesus of Nazareth was actually, anybody remember? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? So I want you, as we even open this sort of line of thinking, as we read Luke 1, I want you to think through with me why this God who stands outside of time. So the Bible tells us from Genesis to Revelation that God Almighty, the Creator, stands outside the fabric of time, which means he stands at the past, the present, and the future all at the same time. Why did this God look across the fabric of time, every city, every age, every people group, every place where he could come and inject himself, every place or city that he could choose to be born, why in the world would he pick Nazareth? Let's look. Let's read in Luke 1. We're going to read verse 26 through 38, and we're going to pivot off of that this morning. We're going to take a look at just practically why Nazareth. We're going to talk about a few misconceptions about Jesus of Nazareth. And you know Jesus still identifies himself as Jesus of Nazareth. When he introduced himself to the Apostle Paul in Acts, he actually said, I am Jesus of Nazareth. So what is this that he would even still claim this title? So we're going to talk about why Nazareth. We're going to talk about some misconceptions about Nazareth. And then we're going to do our infamous pivot into kind of the now what and so what, which is spiritually and theologically, why did God select Nazareth? And then what does that have to do with us today? You ready? Okay, here we go. Luke 1, starting in verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel. Who's Elizabeth? 
John, that's right, it's a relative of Mary, John the Baptist's mom. Now, John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elisha from the Old Testament, really um, paving the way uh, for the ministry of the Lord Jesus. So in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to where? Nazareth, a little town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Now we could also work this same question, why Mary? And Mary was probably 13 years old here. I mean, this is unbelievable to me. Verse 28, the angel went to her and said, greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. If I could pray anything over my life, it would be that. Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid. Now, just a little context here. It's been over 400 years since anyone has heard from or seen God, okay? There's 400 years of relative silence. So Mary wouldn't have even known anyone or heard of anyone or met anyone other than reading in the Old Testament who had met um, an angelic being like this. So she's 13, 14 years old, possibly even 12. Um, The angel shows up. No doubt she's afraid. Verse 30, the angel says to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found faith with God. You will conceive and you will give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, which we read about over here in our Advent verses in Isaiah, verse 33, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will never end. I want you to think for a minute. This kingdom that will never end. Why would we pick Nazareth? Verse 34, how will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One will be born and he will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. And I love Mary's response here in verse 38. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me according to your word. And the angel left her. Father, I pray that as we open this passage, as we wrestle with why Nazareth, and as we attempt to make some inroads into our own heart, that you would enliven us this morning and allow us to see not just the kingdom of God with the eyes of the Spirit, not just Jesus with the eyes um, of the Spirit, but you would allow us to see ourselves. Father, I pray that you would allow us to take our place in this Advent story. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. So how can anything good come from Nazareth? Why Nazareth? A couple of thoughts here. Um, First of all, it was of strategic importance. You may not know this, but for the first 5,000 years, I could have run through this, I'm not going to do it, but for the first 5,000 years of recorded world history, whomever controlled this little swatch of land between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea, which included Nazareth, always had the upper hand in world politics. Kind of interesting. Second thing, there were these Roman roads that were just constructed. So 50 years prior to the birth of Jesus, guess what wasn't there? The Roman roads, 50 years. So I would almost, I mean, those Roman roads, you could argue, were a technological breakthrough, not unlike the internet. 
international connectivity that happened via the internet. There's international suddenly connectivity that happens via these Roman roads. And what's fascinating, if I put a map behind me, but if I put a, a map up and I pointed out Nazareth, Nazareth actually becomes the crossroads between Europe and Asia between Africa and the Middle East. So Nazareth is at this international crossroads. It is actually at the center. And a lot of times we get this idea that Jesus is being raised in this podunk, know-nothing village. And it is, however... People from all over the world are moving through Nazareth. Who does he see reg who, as Jesus is coming up as a little boy? He sees Roman garrisons regularly marching through, going north, going south, going east, going west. People coming from Africa, people coming from Asia, people coming from Europe, people coming from the Middle East. So this little Jesus, as he is growing up, fully God and yet fully human, is taking all of this in, drinking it in, and God Almighty, if you will, is impressing even his humanness with the national and international global spectrum of the gospel. The third thing I would say is it was a place of shelter. Jesus lived during very turbulent times, but Nazareth was surrounded by a beautiful ring of hills all the way around it, and it offered shelter, it offered solitude, making it an ideal place for Jesus to grow up, being nurtured in mind, um, body, and even spirit. Nazareth had a, a tremendous diversity of setting and people because it was the crossroads of Africa, Europe, Asia, and the Middle East. So Nazareth was actually um, a, a small little subsidiary village outside a larger village, which was the capital of Galilee at the time, called Sephoris. And this would have given Jesus a cultural um, context and, and really a rich kind of urban life understanding that would become uh, the entire basis of his teaching. So we might even pause there a minute and say, Michael, why would you even spend, it's Christmas, it is Advent, why would you spend um, time talking about the city of Nazareth? Well, here, here's why, here's the why. The geographical and cultural nuances of Jesus' teachings, his parables, his theology, all came out of his life, his childhood, and his village of Nazareth. Everything came out of this um, understanding, his upbringing, what he saw, what he experienced, and he taught from that place. The other thing that I would say about why Nazareth is the, the Herodian or the Herod dynasty uh, was going on all over the Holy Land. And what's amazing to me, and I, can't, I, I have to believe that God Almighty looked into the fabric of time, and the Herodian dynasty is full of um, corruption and power hunger and greed and lust and murder and all sorts of things, the Herodian dynasty, all the, the Herods. And I, I can't help but believe when God looked into the fabric of time, he went, we're going to contrast contrast the Roman uh, world. We're going to contrast the Herodian world. We're going to contrast the, the Jewish Israelite uh, leaders and Pharisees with this kingdom of God that I am going to raise up within this little Jewish boy who's going to grow up and change the fabric of time. And I think the last thing I would say about Nazareth is it's a little place of humility and simplicity. These Nazareth, Nazareth villagers had to struggle against rocky soil, heavy taxes, Roman occupation, and Herodian oppression. And Jesus got to see people firsthand struggling in the difficulty, farming, raising families, paying taxes. Jesus was in the middle of 
it all. Let me flip for a minute and let's talk about a few misconceptions about Nazareth and then I'm going to do my best to pivot this whole thing and make some applications to our lives. A lot of us uh, may not know that Jesus, or, or we may say, hey, Jesus only spent his childhood in Nazareth, right? But when you study the Gospels, what you discover is that other than a couple of years, year and a half, maybe two years in Egypt, and other than his three years ministering in Galilee and down into Jerusalem, Jesus spent the rest of his life, so other than probably five years, he spent the rest of his life in Nazareth. A lot of us would probably think it was a small and isolated village. And at points it was small, but it was not isolated because it was on this main trade route. It was near Sephoris. Another misconception that some of us might have is that Jesus was a simple and untutored man. But when you get people calling Jesus rabbi or teacher, that means that likely he spent much of his childhood actually learning and studying at the feet of the rabbis. And so he had earned respect for what he had learned and accumulated. Now, what's fascinating to me is in this day and age, there was an expectation that the rabbis would be bivocational. So Jesus having a trade, which was carpentry, and learning at the feet of the rabbis was probably exactly what was happening in his life. A lot of us would have the concept that Jesus grew up in an all-Jewish region. And I would actually say to you that understanding that Nazareth becomes the crossroads for Africa and Asia, Europe, um, and the Middle East, that Jesus grew up in a rich, um, diverse um, I mean, huge ethnic um, divides. He saw all manner of conflict and difficulty, people from all different stations of life. And I can just imagine the little boy Jesus, this is purely Michael, you can't find it in scripture, but I can just imagine this little boy Jesus sitting on the hills of Nazareth, looking down at the Roman roads and watching the Roman garrisons and different people move back and forth and being trained and tutored, if you will, in the way of this Yahweh God. Jesus truly saw all people through the lens of Nazareth. I think another misconception that a lot of people would have is that Jesus was a good man. What are you saying, Pastor Michael? I think those uh, who were poor, um, those who were destitute, those who were being persecuted or suffering at the hand of the Herods or the Romans would have seen Jesus as a good man. But those who were in positions of power would have seen Jesus as a troublemaker. So let me shift now because I want to open something um, and go, all right then, if we set the table with, with just some practicalities about Nazareth, let's make this shift and go spiritually and theologically, why did God Almighty select Nazareth? So let's open it like this. When King Jesus died on the cross, he became the Lamb of God once and for all time, and thereby he punctured the veil to the Holy of Holies. So if you're not familiar with that type of language, um, in the temple in Jerusalem, there was a Holy um, of Holies, right? And so there you have outer courts and then inner courts and then the most Holy of Holies, and the Holy of Holies is separated by this huge curtain, a very thick curtain, um, and only the high priest who's been consecrated for a year could go in there, and he could only go in there bearing um, actually blood to cover both his sin and the sin of all the, the Jewish people. Make sense? 
So he would go into that, um, and he would offer sacrifices um, in the presence of God. So when Jesus died on the cross, I could take you there and show you in the Gospels, but what happened to that big veil? Rent. It was torn uh, from top to bottom. No human could do it because it was such a tall temple. So it's, it's rent, it's torn, the veil is punctured, meaning that the presence of God no longer lives in temples or rooms made by human hands, but now where does the presence of God dwell if we choose? In us, we become the sanctuary. We become the place if you choose to exchange the brokenness of your life for the life of Christ in you and through you. Now, so what I want to open up, though, is there are many of us that even though we are in Christ Jesus, we have a veil over our hearts. So I'm saying if you're in here today and you know Jesus, we may still have a veil over our hearts, if you will, that keeps us from entering into the deep abiding presence and relationship with this King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You guys feel that sometimes? There's moments where I would go, I feel distant. I feel I'm not connected. Lord, why am I not in step? And so I want to open up this question. And if you'll, if you'll hang with me, some of you are going, how does this relate to Nazareth? It does. So here's what I want to pitch to you, and a guy named A.W. Tozer would certainly say this, but the veil that covers most of our hearts is woven of the fine threads of our self-life. Okay, let's keep going. So what is challenging is the, the, the threads of our self-life um, are not readily identifiable outward sins, which is what most of us American Christians love to focus on, Right? So you're going, okay, Pastor Michael, what then are you talking about? Let me tell you. I'm glad you asked. So the, what I am talking about are actually deep inward sins of the heart. I would actually propose from Genesis to Revelation that what God is always dealing with, he's always focusing on. But it's not something we do. Rather, it's something we are something it's an identity and theologically this gets a little bit tricky because when you come to Christ you are um, justified you exchange your brokenness for the life of Christ in you and through you but throughout the New Testament we would see that there is still a sin pattern or sin principle living in us and I would basically say to you that's probably the life of your self and my self okay let's keep going hang with me in the original Greek language, Jesus talked about denying uh, the self, or he would say the autos. So you don't have to turn here, but I'm going to turn to Matthew 16, verses 24 and 25, and we're going to circle back to why in the world Nazareth. Okay, Matthew 16, verse 24 and 25. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, autos, deny themselves, and take up their cross and follow me. Okay? For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life in me will find it. Now, if we cross-reference that with the Apostle Paul, he talks about the same thing. Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8 is kind of the ultimate high point of Pauline theology on this. But when the Apostle Paul talks about it, he talks about anthropos or sarks in Greek, and that translates to a man or, or person um, or human flesh. And even though Paul is using different words, I would say to you this morning that he's speaking about the same, um, uh, the same thing as Christ Jesus. So think with me here. Galatians 2.20 says... I have been crucified with Christ Jesus. I no longer live, but Christ Jesus now lives in me and through me. Okay. What does this have to do with Nazareth? Hang on. 
Jesus would say, in order to be my disciple, you have to deny your autos, yourself, take up your cross, which is an instrument of death, and follow me. Paul's saying, I have been crucified with Christ. In other words, my false self, um, my sinful self, my sarks, my anthropos, my autos, has been crucified with Christ Jesus, and it no longer lives, but Christ Jesus now lives in me and through me. Got it? So when you come to Christ and you get this idea, what does it mean that I am dying? Your false self, your sinful self, um, your, your, the, the part of you um, that is full of, of sin, if you will, is the part that gets crucified with Christ Jesus, and then the, the, who God created you to be is resurrected. It's the symbol of baptism, right? You're resurrected to life in Christ Jesus, and your process of the, the sanctification journey, the Jesus journey, um, walking it out with him becomes this day by day thing where you're experiencing newness of heart and mind and Christ Jesus is now ruling and reigning in you and through you. Make sense? The risk is that you assume that because you got saved, you were born again, you prayed a prayer, you gave your life to Jesus, that you think you can no longer sin. You can ask anyone close to me and guess what they'll tell you? You can sin. But here's the invitation, is you and I as Christians, and if you're here and you're not a Christian or you're a doubter, you're an atheist, welcome to the journey. You're, you're welcome to just be here and, and sit with us. But if you're not a believer, if you've never surrendered your life to this Jesus, you are invited not just to be born again, not just to give your life to Jesus, not just to experience Emmanuel, God with us in this Advent season, but you're invited to experience a day-by-day -day abiding relationship where you are walking it out and you are experiencing the crucifixion of your own self, your flesh, your sarks, your autos, um, it, it, is, it is the full death of you so that God could resurrect who he created you to be. Does that make sense? So a lot of what our current, like, American culture is built on is you get to do you, you get to be you, you get to do it. Christianity is the total opposite of that. You actually come and you surrender all of your rights. You lay it down. But what is amazing is through the resurrection power of Christ, he raises you up and you become who you were created to be. It's the best exchange ever. Okay, let me keep wrestling here because I think there's something that is just so powerful here. All right, only through, what does this have to do with Nazareth? Hang on. We're going to get there, I promise. Okay, the, the only through the death of yourself, um, your, uh, the, 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 the false you, if you will, the sinful self, um, can you experience the life of Christ uh, sort of in you and through you. So let me say this again. What I think is most challenging is the veil of this self. For those of us who are in Jesus, what is most challenging is it is so sly and almost seductive and so hard to see when your false self, when your sinful self is raising up. And here is the absolute worst part, and I don't know what to do about it other than just to tell you straight. The church and organized religion notoriously cultivates the false self. That's what's dangerous about a stage like this is because you put a busted, broken human on it or you put a busted, broken human on a camera and all of a sudden they're preaching and they're going on and they've learned a bunch of good seminary things or they've read some books and they stand up and tell some good stories and if you're not careful, what can happen is you begin to think that, well, I've arrived and I'm going to help them because I 
I don't think there's a more dangerous occupation than being any type of preacher, pastor, teacher, or communicator for the gospel of King Jesus because it is so easy to step out of grace and into your false self and begin to think that you've got it. Now, let me flip this. Is this applicable to you wherever you're sitting today? Oh, man. Oh, woman. Okay, so let's open this another level then. So, Michael, what are the sins of the self-life? So if I can't look at, you know, the traditional sins that the church would talk about, um, just old school church, chewing and drinking and partying and blah, 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 all that stuff. Okay, if it's not that, then what are these sins of the self-life? What are the sins of the the fabric? What is it made of? Self-confidence. Self-love. Self-pity, self-sufficiency, self-righteousness, self-admiration, self-promotion, self-importance, self-exaltation. Anything um, that, that can become woven into sort of your nature where you're taking an identity apart from God or you're elevating yourself in such a way that you become like a little God in your own eyes becomes the very thing by which the false self or the sinful self or your sarks is taking root and growing. Make sense? Let's keep wrestling it. So, and I think what's dangerous, and I sort of made mention of it, but these things are strangely not just tolerated, but a lot of times they're celebrated in Christian leadership and Christian church. A lot of times they're even celebrated in places that have impeccable theology. So I would actually argue uh, to you this morning or present to you that in accordance with the teachings of Christ Jesus in the Gospels, that apart from a deep, abiding, daily, transactional relationship with the King of kings and Lord of lords, where you're exchanging your brokenness for the life of Christ in you and through you, that um, religion, apart from relationship, becomes the fertile soil by which this sort of false self or ugly self can actually thrive and grow. You follow me? I know this is kind of hard. Some of you are like, I can't quite, just hang with me and let's see if we can work this thing through. Let me, um, let me say it to you like this. Someone came up to me, uh, and people, people come up frequently to me um, after a service or they'll come up to me during the week or they'll call me or they'll send me an email. Hello. <laughs> uh, but they'll call me or send me an email, they'll do whatever. And um, they'll say, uh, Michael, I love how humble you are. I love how self-deprecating you are. I love that you get up on stage and you share your failures, right? And guess what in that moment I am now at risk of? Come on. I am at risk in that moment of becoming self-righteous. In other words, I can actually take my self-deprecation and my um, self-humility and self-abasement and I can actually use that all of a sudden as a currency by which I can establish myself. You follow me? Now, I mean, we could, we could take this same scenario across every part of your life. You're a Christian, and you diligently save your money, and you diligently tithe your money, and suddenly, if you're not careful, all of a sudden, you become proud, greedy, stingy, and looking down on people who can't manage their finances. You see how quick it happens? Like we become, we slide into the sins of the self, self-importance, self-righteousness, so quickly 
Uh, let me totally flip this thing on its head one another way. Uh, many of us as Christians, m- largely well-off um, American Christians, it would do us really good to get out and serve with people who are living on the streets. Tony and Christine with Living Hope, or Kyle over here with Vigilant Hope, okay? It would be great for us to get out there and serve. Now, let me flip something. I have sat with people who are living in homelessness who have a sense that because they are not ensnared by all the entrapments that you and I are, they are actually superior and free. So here's what I want you to see. Do I think it would be good for you to go volunteer with Kyle at Vigilant Hope or Tony and Christine at Living Hope? 100%. Yes, hear me. But I want you to hear something deeper that the life of the self is so subtle that no matter what you do, you can begin to view yourself as self-important, self-righteous, and establish your identity by what you're doing or choosing not to do instead of establishing your identity through and by King Jesus and King Jesus alone. Does that make sense? So the moment you trade anything that you're doing, anything that you're saying or anything that you're not doing, and you begin to think that you're doing pretty well because you're not doing it or you are doing it or the way that you're doing it, you are stepping, I am telling you, you are stepping out of grace and into your own sort of um, version of sarks or autos uh, or flesh. And God tells us to allow the cross of Christ to put it to death. Here's the hard part. You can't put it to death in your own steam. Here's the other hard part. I don't even think you can discern it in your own steam. The the Apostle Paul actually writes in one place, I don't even judge myself, which means we are left sort of bankrupt and void to go, God, how can we discern this? How can we be free of it? And would you set us free? Which means every time we get up, what is being cultivated inside of us on our own Jesus journey is a life and an attitude of great dependence and open hands. And the moment you close your hands and think you've got it all together, you're in danger. I actually don't think there's any place where you're more anti-Jesus than when you're in some level of self-exaltation. And I don't think there's any place where you're more, um, that's anti-Jesus, more like Jesus than when you're in a place of um, self-depreciation, clinging to and leaning on his person and his person alone. Does it make sense? What does this have to do with Nazareth? Self-sins are often the veil that hides us from the presence of God. If you are sitting out there and you're a Christian, maybe you've been in this journey a long time, and you would be like, I don't know, I would like to experience more of the presence of God, more of the voice of God. I would like to know his love. I would like to know the purposes to which he's called me. I would encourage you to begin to go, Father, are there self-sins in my heart that have to be crucified with Christ Jesus so that I can begin to experience a daily abiding presence with you, your life in me, this transactional Christianity where I'm clinging to you and relying on you, I'm casting off my old self, and I'm taking on the character and life of Christ Jesus. So, why Nazareth? Why Nazareth? Why Mary? 
why this little place in this little corner of the Middle East? There is, I could take you through the entire Old Testament, but there is a salient strand of Old Testament prophecy that paints a different picture of this Jesus. Most of the people, most of the Jews who looked at the Old Testament, they were waiting for a king who would come like King David in front of an army um, on a horse um, to set up his kingdom and his will and his way. And they were right, but they got the timing wrong. If you read the book of Revelation, Jesus will return, and when he returns, he will come on a horse, and he will come at the head of an army, and he will establish himself as king of kings and lord of lords. But first he came to break the back of the false self that is so prevalent in every single one of us. And so when Jesus um, came in this, uh, fulfilling this salient strand of Old Testament prophecy, um, and some of them are almost muted. You have to look a little bit deeper, but you get an image of a different kind of Messiah. You get an image of a suffering servant. You get an image of one who is humble. You get an image of one who didn't come uh, to be served, but to serve. You get an image of a, a king who comes riding on a donkey. You get an image of a king who comes um, unobtrusively from absolutely nowhere. He rides out of absolute insecurity. He rides out of poverty. He rides really out of homelessness. He rides with no known lineage. In, in fact, I can't help but think that God chose not to have Jesus raised in Bethlehem because Bethlehem is throughout the Old Testament, and people from Bethlehem are really, really respected. But people from Nazareth are actually super disrespected, and nothing good comes out of Nazareth. So why would this Yahweh God, King Almighty, God of the universe, choose to inject himself, Emmanuel, God with us, into the fabric of human time, into a know-nothing, disrespected village like Lazarus, or like Nazareth, excuse me, so that you and I would know once and for all that there is nothing you can do or I can do in our own steam. There is nothing we can shed. There is nothing we can add. There is nothing no performance we can take on that will earn ourselves fully into ingratiating ourselves into the presence and power of God. So he injects himself into this know-nothing place and begins to invite know-nothing people to begin to partake in his table, journeying with him if you are willing to shed the autos, to shed the sarks, to shed the old self, and if you are willing to take up your place as one who is here not to, serve, to be served, but to serve. And if you are willing to take that posture again and again and again, then what happens and what King Jesus will begin to do is, is shedding that old self, shedding those layers. You have to pass through this Nazareth and you can begin to experience this abiding relationship with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now listen to me. I see my, and I just let me just be open and honest with you here today for a few minutes. I see my sarks, my autos, my false self, my sinful self rise up inside of me every single day. One of my kids goes, hey, can we go out and play? And I go, nah, I want to do my own thing. What is that? Sarks, flesh. Is it always? No. Should I do everything my kids want? No, that's not what I'm saying. Pile of dishes in the kitchen. Nah, let her do it. Roll up those sleeves, shed the sarks, shed the 
autos. I am here to lay down my life. My Bible says that I'm supposed to love my wife and my kids and my family and my church like Jesus loved his church. And therefore Jesus loved his church, how? By dying, Not, and he died once, and we're called to die once when we get born again, but we are called to die daily. We are called to show up and serve. We are called to show up and love. We are called to give. We are called to reach out to people. We are called to lay down our lives, and here's the thing I know, is that if you and I as Christian believers, in a day and age when people are largely self-glorifying, self-appreciating, um, uh, full of their own self-confidence and their own self-esteem, even if it's a fake or it's a farce, if we come in and you are trading on kindness and genuineness and love and humility and service, it penetrates the veil of their own self and it actually creates an openness where the kingdom of God can break into them. Emmanuel, God with us. It is so good, but it requires, clap for Jesus, come on. <clears throat> If you want to be a Jesus person, meaning if you want to practice the presence of Jesus day by day, moment by moment, it requires that you begin to engage in a constant shedding of your old self and all of the old attitudes and all of the old things that creep up and wanna overtake you to gain your affinity and your affection and your loyalty and your love. And it requires that you push those things away, not just once, but that you give them to God again and again and again so that you can journey with him. So God sovereignly looks into this fabric of time and he goes, we don't need a grandiose king at this point. We don't need someone who is self-exalting. We don't need someone who is self-important. We need someone who is from nowhere. We need someone who is a nobody. We need someone who doesn't have a lineage and doesn't have an education to speak of and doesn't have a legacy and doesn't have wealth. We need someone who is actually homeless. We need someone who can come in and can actually shatter what we as humans value and believe and look up to most of the time. We need to send a king to go to a little town like Nazareth to change the history of the world. Undignified, almost shameful. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And it's totally Jesus of Nazareth, almost the undignified, almost from a shameful place. He, has, he is from nowhere. And I would say to you this morning that the path to the glory of God and the path to you experiencing his glory, the path to you even experiencing the life of Christ in you and through you is the death of self and this abiding association that, with Jesus of Nazareth. And now hear me, and, because don't hear me saying that he's going to end in Nazareth. He, he was born in Bethlehem. He was raised and lived in Nazareth. He's going to come again and establish his rule and reign in Jerusalem, a new Jerusalem, a new heaven, a new earth, and he'll be a king of kings and lord of lords at that point. But in this moment, if you and I want to become co-sharers in this Jesus journey, we actually have to pass through Nazareth. So what are you invited to this Christmas? You're invited to become citizens of this earthly Nazareth. You and I are invited to this qualitative space associated with insignificance, servitude, suffering, humility, slaves to all, and yet in reality opening up this vast contrast in the hidden glory of the unseen kingdom of God. 
You and I are invited to pass through Nazareth this Christmas season and to stop making life all about you and begin to go, Lord Jesus, I humble myself before you again. Would you forgive me? Would you help me? Would you take this sarks away, this autos away? And would you instead fill me with the life of Christ? I know that prayer doesn't sound very magnificent, does it? I've gotten to where I pray it multiple times a day. Because if I don't, what happens? That ugliness of self sneaks back in. And it becomes, what can I get? It's about me. I'm the center. And if you don't know that about yourself, ask your spouse. Ask a good friend. Ask somebody that will tell you the truth. And guess what you'll hear? You got it. You got it. Why Nazareth? Because Jesus puts to death the false self here. He puts to death all semblance of religion. He puts to death all self-effort. He offends all those who are self-righteous through their own strength, their own religion. This is Jesus of Nazareth. This is Jesus of nothing. This is Jesus from nowhere. This is Jesus not made by human hands. And so by passing through Nazareth, we become partakers in the kingdom. Come on. I want to walk with this Jesus. And I want to shed myself again so that I can be everything that he created me to be. Okay, let's pray. Worship team, would you guys come out? Why don't you close your eyes right where you are? I'm going to have you stand up in a minute, but for now, let's close our eyes and sit in this for just a second. Prayer team, if you'll go ahead and make your way up front, if you'll be available for prayer, that would be delightful. Worship team, I'm going to pray, and then in just a minute, you guys can jump in. Father, I am convinced that we are living in a day and age where everything that we are called to in this culture is about the self. Self Self-esteem, self-confidence, self-importance. And when I read about you, King Jesus, I see you calling us to lay down everything, to encounter and experience you again and again. And Father, I pray that this Christmas season, in a season when if we're not careful, it becomes about what we can get and the new thing and the next thing and how we feel and how we look. Father, I pray that you would help us become a people who pass through Nazareth become a people that choose to be a people of nothing, a people of ill repute, a people who lay it all down in order to take on the character and likeness of Christ. Father, I pray for us as a church that we would be a people that would find ourselves living in the current Nazareth where we trade it all because you are the only one who is worth it. As we close in this song, If you need special prayer, I'd love for you to come down and pray with one of our prayer team. If you're here in the room and you've never given your life to this Jesus, I mean, really exchange the brokenness of your own life for the life of Christ in you and through you. Would you come down and pray with me here or Pastor Andrew right here? We'd love to lead you in that journey. This is Jesus, God with us, Emmanuel, here and present now. Don't walk out of here without 
giving your heart to him for the first time, number one. But number two, if you're in that Jesus journey without shedding part of that false self so you can experience the richness of life and relationship with him. Let's stand up together as we close. We're going to sing this song, and then I will close us in prayer in just a minute. Rid me of myself, Lord, I belong to you. Father, I pray that in this Christmas season that we as a church would experience the fullness of Emmanuel, God with us. Father, I pray that by your grace, you would gently remove those veils, those things, those love of self areas in our hearts that are preventing us as individuals and even as a church from experiencing the fullness of your presence, your advent, your arrival, you being Emmanuel. Father, we praise your holy name. We thank you for Christmas. And I pray that as this church exits on this day, that they would sense the warmth of your gaze upon them, that they would sense your presence beckoning them deeper and further in their own journey, that they would experience your love and your life. And Father, would you bless them and keep them this Christmas season. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen and amen. We're so glad you've listened in with us here at Saltbox, and we'd love to get to know you better. So we hope you'll stay in touch and get more involved by joining us on the YouTube live stream. We hope you have a great week, and we encourage you to keep digging into your faith, because at the end of the day, it's just Jesus. Nothing more, nothing less.